You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Friends, uh, colleagues, guests, those of you who are joining us online, you're all very, very welcome indeed to the Neil Hoey Theatre here in the Trinity Long Room Hub for another of our Behind the Headlines. Uh, Tonight we are dealing with race and we're going to ask the question, does race matter? Uh, My name's Jane Olmeyer and I'm the director of the Trinity uh, Long Room Hub. And for those of you who don't know us, we're a research institute in the arts and humanities uh, and we really do three things. So the first thing we do is celebrate the excellence in the arts and humanities which goes back uh, to the 17th century and continues to this day. Uh, The second thing we do is promote conversations in and across uh, disciplines. And really the hub is all about inter and multidisciplinarity. And um, we believe that the magic happens when the disciplines collide, as I think they're going to tonight. And then the third thing um, we do is public humanities. So we have a whole series of signature uh, events, including this Behind the Headlines uh, public discussion uh, series, which is uh, supported by the John uh, Pollard Foundation. In these Behind the Headlines, uh, we look at topics that are being debated uh, in the media or that are highly relevant to the times in which uh, we're living. And what we want to do is to apply the rich and long-term perspectives of the arts and humanities and to provide a very respectful public uh, uh, discourse, uh, but also to embrace uh, nuance and combat uh, simplification. Now, our conversation this evening could not be more timely, um, uh, and I suspect uh, we're going to be addressing issues that uh, never actually go away. So we're really, really uh, delighted to have a very, very uh, distinguished uh, panel uh, uh, for you this evening. We'll be looking at race and technology, the history of the civil rights movement here and in the north, apartheid, the experiences of navigating higher education uh, with visible difference of race. Um, And I think we're really going to get some fascinating insights on our question of does race uh, matter? So I'm going to introduce the speakers in the order in which they'll speak. Um, And our first speaker tonight is uh, uh, Professor Daniel Geary, who is the Mark Piggott uh, Professor uh, in American History here at Trinity. And um, Dan's research focuses on the intellectual, political and cultural history of uh, the 20th century uh, United States. Uh, And he obviously has a a real interest in um, uh, race and ethnicity, as well as the transnational history of the civil rights uh, movements and of white nationalism and the relationship of politics to uh, uh, popular culture. Um, He had a cracking op-ed in the uh, uh, Irish Independent this morning. I don't know if any of you read it. If not, I would encourage you uh, uh, to do so. Uh, But one of his current projects includes a book on the rise and fall of the concept of uh, racial uh, integration and a study of connections between the US and Northern Ireland during the civil rights era. And that's what the um, uh, op-ed looked at. So great to hear, Dan. Our second speaker tonight is uh, Eugenia 
Siapera. Have I got that right, Eugenia? Yeah, forgive me. Um, she's professor and head of the School of uh, Information and Communication Studies at, at UCD. Her research focuses on digital media and hate speech, uh, covering both racism and misogyny. Uh, she completed very recently, in 2018, <coughs> a project on tracking and monitoring racist hate speech in social media, which was funded by the Irish Research Council. It's nice to give the Irish Research Council a plug. I've got a vested interest in doing so, of course. Um, and uh, the Irish uh, Human Rights uh, and, uh, uh, and Equality Commission, they co-funded it with the uh, IRC. Um, so it's really lovely that you're here uh, with us uh, this evening, Eugenia, and we look forward to uh, hearing from you as well. Also joining us this evening is Sahar uh, Ahmed, who is a PhD student in our School of Law. Uh, she's researching the right to freedom of religion within the international human rights legal system and Islamic uh, jurisprudence. Sahar has a fascinating life story. I was chatting to her earlier, but she practised as a commercial and corporate barrister in Lahore, um, appearing uh, uh, before the courts as an advocate uh, of the High Courts of Pakistan and covered a whole range of contentious uh, 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 issues and no doubt we'll be hearing about some of them or maybe not. Uh, and then she has also uh, studied at uh, the School of uh, Oriental and African uh, uh, Studies, SOAS, uh, in the University of London uh, where uh, she did a LLM. I was going to say a prize-winning LLM. She was awarded uh, the School of Law's uh, prize for best performing LLM student. Uh, last but not least, and I say this because I, um, my dear friend, uh, uh, Pramesh Lalu, who is currently a visiting research fellow here at the Trinity Long Room Hub. Uh, Pramesh is also the director of the Centre for Humanities Research, uh, which is a national research foundation flagship at the University of uh, the Western uh, Cape in South Africa. Do any of you remember Kader Asmal? There's a number of us in the audience who remember Kader Asmal very well. So Premish uh, also uh, was a great friend of, of Kader Asmal. Um, he's the co-editor of Remains of the Social, uh, Desiring uh, the Post-Apartheid, and also of Becoming UWC, Reflections, Pathways, and uh, Unmaking Apartheid's uh, Legacies. Uh, both La uh, Pramesh and I are on the board of uh, an organisation called the Consortium of Humanity Centres and uh, Institutes. And um, I cannot tell you, Pramesh, how much we've enjoyed having you here uh, in Trinity. We've, he's been with us for the last three months. Sadly, he's leaving uh, next week uh, because he's just brought such um, uh, wisdom and, and so many wonderful insights uh, uh, to the community here in the hub. So we're absolutely thrilled that you're able to join us on the panel uh, this evening. So those are our four speakers. Uh, those of you who are, are familiar with the series know that um, they're all limited to nine minutes. So um, uh, everybody has a very strict uh, uh, nine minute rule um, because we want to leave plenty of time for Q&A. Um, we are live streaming tonight's conversation and we'll also be podcasting it. We would encourage those of you who um, like to tweet to please do so using the hashtag um, uh, uh, is it Hub Matters or uh, actually, what is it? Oh, there it is there, sorry, at the TLRH. Um, uh, so please now welcome uh, uh, 
Professor Daniel Geary. Uh, thank you very much, Jane. Well, who better to kick off a discussion about race than uh, a white guy? Um, <laughs> race is not a natural phenomenon, even though I think we're inclined, all of us, even those who, uh, who know better at some level, to think of it that way. Uh, race is a historical, a political, and a cultural uh, phenomenon. It is not a noun. Uh, I mean, it is a noun, but really, race is, should be thought of more as a verb. It's something that isn't that happened. It's not something that is. Uh, and moreover, it's complicated because race is not simply racism and racialization, that is, you know, a superior group defining an inferior group uh, as a separate race in order to oppress them, but it can also be used uh, in uh, resistance, uh, groups that have been oppressed uh, taking on certain racial identities. So I think I want us to think of race as something that's complicated and that's historically rooted and rooted in different um, ideologies and power relations. And I'm going to illustrate this by, well, I'm a historian, so I'm going to, to tell a story. Uh, and this is a story of civil rights activist Bernadette Devlin's uh, 1969 trip to the United States, in which she uh, baffled Irish Americans by repeatedly identifying with African Americans on the trip. <coughs> so, 50 years ago, Devlin captured American media attention on a tour sponsored by Irish American groups with the design of highlighting Catholic oppression in Northern Ireland and raising uh, funds for them. At the, the start of the Troubles, American attention was beginning to shift toward Ulster, and the fashionably dressed, charismatic, 22-year-old uh, Westminster MP, Devlin, was a major attraction. She spoke to mass audiences in American cities, she gave interviews to national media outlets, and she even appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Uh, Devlin's trip and her popularity was so threatening, indeed, to unionists that Stormont uh, dispatched a so-called true squad of, uh, of MPs to the U.S. in order to refute her claims, and the Reverend Ian Paisley embarked on an impromptu American speaking tour organized by his uh, longtime American ally, the right-wing minister Carl McIntyre. Paisley had his own connections on the other side of things to American segregationists that I'd be happy to talk about later, but I'll leave that to the side for now. Throughout her visit, Devlin repeatedly made common cause with African Americans. After all, the Northern Irish Civil Rights Movement had taken considerable inspiration from the African American movement, borrowing tactics, iconography, and even the very civil rights name itself. But Devlin's identification with African Americans surprised Irish Americans. At a rally in Philadelphia, Devlin uh, discomforted her audience when she asked the African American singer who was there to uh, provide that night's entertainment, mainly by, you know, singing uh, Republican, Irish Republican songs. Uh, Devlin asked, uh, when, you know, she gave the had the choice to uh, recommend a song, she asked that he sing We Shall Overcome, the civil rights anthem in the U.S. and in Northern Ireland as well. Uh, some of the audience began to walk out at that point, so Devlin joined him on the stage in an effort to shame Irish Americans who refused to make the links between the two struggles. In Detroit, Devlin refused to speak until hundreds of African Americans who wished to hear her were allowed into the venue. And in Chicago, she pointedly uh, declined to meet with the Irish American mayor, Richard Daly, partly because she viewed him as a racist. And most controversially, uh, Devlin was given a key to the city by the mayor of New York, uh, and this was later handed over to the Black Panthers by her comrade Eamon McCann in a future trip 
For good measure, McCann denounced Irish Americans as hypocrites for supporting equality in Northern Ireland, but not in the U.S. Devlin, too, was frustrated by Irish Americans who actively supported civil rights for Catholics in Northern Ireland, but not racial equality in the U.S. I cannot understand, she said, the mental conflict of some of our Irish Americans who will fight forever for the struggle of justice in Ireland, and yet play the role of the oppressor and will not stand shoulder to shoulder with their fellow black Americans. She was especially disturbed by some of her hosts on the visit, wealthy Irish Americans who repeated racist uh, anti-black tropes to her. To Devlin, they quote, look and sounded like orange men. They said exactly the same things about blacks that the loyalists said about us back home. Irish Americans were baffled by Devlin's equation of the two civil rights struggles. After all, the Irish, like other European immigrant groups in the US, had obtained social privilege by defining themselves as white. By defining themselves against blacks, they erased uh, earlier notions that the Irish were a different and inferior race to the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who had traditionally run the country. Therefore, many conservative Irish Americans were outraged by Devlin's claims. Like other white Americans, they denied the persistent reality of racial inequality, viewing African-American inequality as self-inflicted. But it's not that all Irish Americans were racist. They certainly weren't. But even the liberal Irish Americans who supported African-American civil rights were puzzled by Devlin's behavior, seeing no obvious links between the causes Irish and African-American freedom. In the US, to be Irish was to be white, which meant to be not black. But for Catholics in Northern Ireland, it was possible not just to make common cause with the African-American freedom struggle, but to actually assert an identity as, in some sense, black. A frequent refrain in the civil rights struggle was that Catholics were Ulster's Negroes. There were many reasons for this identification, highlighting similar situations such as housing discrimination, job discrimination, and political gerrymandering. Moreover, the African-American civil rights struggle had received very positive coverage in the British and Northern Irish media. So if Ulster Protestants in the British public could be convinced that the situation of Catholics in Northern Ireland was analogous to that of African Americans, it meant their cause was a truly just one. But I don't think this was simply a propaganda move on the part of civil rights uh, activists in the North. As I think Devlin's story shows there was a genuine and instinctive identification with African Americans. That's not to say that this identification was without its own problems. Overdrawing the analogy between Northern Irish Catholics and African Americans conflated the very different oppressions of the two groups in ways that could actually deny the scale of African slavery and its aftermath. For example, today there's a persistent myth that sees the indentured servitude of the Irish in the colonial United States as equivalent to the enslavement of Africans. This myth in the US serves the purpose of saying that, well, since the Irish were once oppressed and have now made good in America, blacks have nothing to complain about. That myth, incidentally, has been repeated by none other than Jerry Adams, uh, for whom it no doubt had a very different valence, more similar to the identification promoted by those such as Devlin earlier. At times, identification with African Americans could even shade over into a form of racism. For example, at a civil rights protest in Dungannon in 1963, two young boys held a sign reading, they talk about Alabama, why don't they talk about Dungannon? They were dressed in blackface. And the implication of their sign was not necessarily one of identification with the African American movement, 
so much as, as suggesting that blacks in America shouldn't get the same attention for their struggle as whites in Ireland, it would be wrong for blacks to get rights before whites did. To her credit, Devlin came to recognize some of these complexities. She later recognized, for example, that when at that 1969 Philadelphia rally, she'd asked the African-American singer to, to sing We Shall Overcome, she'd put him in a very difficult position without his consent. And her visit to the US led to concrete connections with African-American activists, especially those in the Black Panthers, that led her to a more considered understanding of the relationship between blacks in America and whites in Ulster. But nevertheless, I think her visit shows the complex ways in which racial identification works, and I suppose this especially complicated relationship that exists historically and today between the Irish, the Irish diaspora, and people of African descent. Thank you. Thank you. later, uh, I just want to focus today on the digital world and uh, make the argument that instead of leveling the playing field, the, the new technologies, in fact, both reproduce uh, existing inequalities and produce new, um, new ones. And this, is, uh, this begins with um, a, a reference, let's say, to the kind of ideology that that underpins a lot of the technology and a lot of the digital world, which is referred to as the Californian ideology, is a combination of California-based countercultural ideas about individualism and meritocracy, along with um, uh, techno-solutionism, the technologies that innovation will resolve existing uh, social and political problems. However, reality has proven to be very, very different. Uh, and I will try to explain this with reference to specifically hate speech and the um, and, and, and racial, racially toxic contents that circulate in, in the digital world and especially in social media. So um, to begin with, and I'm sure uh, this doesn't come as a surprise to you, uh, all kinds of like uh, informational contents on the web are, are arranged and organized through um, algorithms, little recipes that, that people use to organize, to, to kind of like organize contents. So in terms of um, these algorithms, um, the way in which they work is that they learn through being fed with data. And the data they feed into them determines the output. So a lot of you might have heard about the shift, the recent shift towards data-driven decisions as a better way of, let's say, organizing society because they're fair, they're scientific, they're technological, they're innovative. However, if you feed to these algorithms data that are already biased, the outcome that you get is itself biased. So now we have a situation where there is a shift across different domains uh, in terms of using uh, data, but the, the data sets that we have are, are very, very biased. And I'll give you two examples of this. One was a recent article published, an investigation published in, in ProPublica in the US, where they found that when it comes to uh, risk assessments through algorithms, 
which take a lot of factors in in order to come up with a better kind of like risk assessment, what happened was that, um, that in fact, these uh, algorithms systematically discriminate against minorities by, for example, denying them bail or contributing to higher sentences. So this, is, this has happened in the United States. Uh, in uh, other areas, uh, researchers created a machine learning tool to recognize skin cancer from photographs. The problem, however, was that the data set they fed into it relied on Google Images, and Google Images have, has only 5% uh, of, a, of its photographs are based on darker skinned people. So this kind of like tool that supposedly recognizes skin cancer effectively discriminates against um, darker skinned people. So we see here that uh, algorithms in this respect reproduce the same kind of like racial logics that structure the physical and material world. But moving on to content, which is something that I'm much more familiar with, um, in our research, in the context of Ireland, using a tool that we developed, we found that, in fact, uh, racially toxic contents in Ireland are almost ubiquitous. And they are triggered by um, everything and nothing, if you want. Certain, certain topics certainly triggered much more uh, uh, toxicity. For example, anything that referred to housing or welfare, uh, anything that referred to refugees, anything that referred to travellers triggered massive amounts of, uh, of toxic um, speech. Um, but the problem is not that this speech circulates, it's that it does things. And one of the things that have, we have recently realised is that, in fact, uh, toxic speech online is linked to real-life violence. And we saw this very clearly more recently with the Christchurch terrorist attacks, but also before that with the Pittsburgh synagogue attacks and also the Finsbury um, Park uh, mosque attack in, in uh, London. So there's also some research that has shown that there's a causal link between online hate speech and street violence. There's a very important paper that has been written in the context of Germany where they found that almost there's a kind of like uh, um, a, a correspondence between uh, anti-refugee posts uh, and uh, anti-refugee incidents. So the, these researchers did a study where they studied the, the Facebook page of AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland, the outright or extreme right for some uh, political party in Germany, and they found for every uh, four anti-refugee posts left on the on the page, there was one real-life uh, attack against refugees. And they tested this model when they found that when there was an internet outage the incidence of uh, violence against refugees uh, de decreased. So it was a very kind of like robust finding. Um, but uh, hate speech against racialized people, it's not only words and it's not only linked to violence, but it's also linked to what we can call uh, economic vandalism. So in a context where more and more of us have to rely on a digital presence in order to... Uh, to survive basically economically and uh, we see that racialized people are hounded out, out of the internet because of toxic uh, hate speech uh, used against them. And here we have the example of the study of Becky Gardner who used to be uh, the editor of The Guardian's Comment is Free who found that of all the people who were posting opinion uh, articles on the side uh, people of ethnic minority backgrounds, and especially women of ethnic minority backgrounds, were at the forefront of receiving all this hate. And some of them would say things like, you know, uh, I'm not sure I'm in the right profession, I should move uh, outside of this. 
So why do we have this kind of like um, uh, abundance, let's say, of hateful contents? Well, it's very difficult to kind of like explain this now, but certainly one factor, contributory factor, is the uh, inability or unwillingness of social media platforms to effectively deal with this issue. And one reason for this is the, their ideology, which is an individualist, uh, liberal ideology that's, that does not take into account any kind of like historicity or context and, uh, and, and considers all categories the same. So then if you have like a piece of content which is, and excuse me, I don't ask for this, uh, but, um, but it's an actual example of Facebook. So if a post such as white men are assholes is left on Facebook, this is going to be taken down as hateful hate speech. However, if you put a content such as poor black children should still sit in the back of the bus, or immigrants are filthy, or immigrants are filth, these are going to be uh, to remain online. So this is the kind of, uh, of distinctions that Facebook is making between what they call protected categories and quasi-protected categories or even unprotected categories. So poor, children, poor black children is uh, what they call a quasi-protected category, so it doesn't uh, have the same degree of, of uh, protection as other ones. So also, of course, Facebook is really invested in terms of <coughs> circulating contents online uh, because that's how they make money. So uh, the other problem now coming to, to regulating hate speech online is how do we report this? Who reports this? And if I ask you here, I will uh, for sure find out that the main people who report this are the people who are at the receiving end. So racialized people uh, are tasked with uh, the task of actually reporting these contents to be removed. So it's an extra kind of like... Um, let's say, labor that they have to perform because no one else is doing it. I mean, now Facebook has, is running algorithms, but again, uh, the burden of this falls onto the shoulders, again, of people who are racialized. So, to conclude, I want to say this. Rather than leveling the playing field or enabling the full participation of racialized others, digital technologies and media, in fact, generate more inequalities um, because they exclude racialized others from participating fully in the development, uh, programming, design of new technologies, because they increasingly make use of data-driven decisions but relying on racially biased data, because they regular, regulate the flows of hate instead of actually removing the hate, hate speech from online environments, and because they rely on the free labor of racialized people in reporting these contents but without actually allowing them to have a say as to what they want to remain online or not. Mm. So I will stop here. Thank you. Thank you very much. who is a very accomplished professor, I am not a researcher of anything remotely related to race. Well, that can be argued, I suppose, but I am not a researcher of critical race theory. I do not study race. So what am I doing here? I am actually doing the absolute first thing that needs to be done when having any conversation about race in a white setting. I am taking up this space that has been seated by a white institution in a position of power and privilege in this case, the Long Room Hub, 
to offer a first-hand narrative of uh, experiencing institutionalized racism. As black and brown bodies, we are often the last ones to actually be asked to speak about our experiences. White scholars do research about black and brown communities, and they are hired by white institutions to speak about the experiences of black and brown communities to other white scholars and white audiences in other white institutions. It is cyclical and never-ending. So I actually thank the Hub for having the moral fortitude in this case to cede power in a way. It is the very first step that needs to be taken to have a conversation. When I moved to Ireland, I did not research what life was going to be like for a woman of color, and particularly as one in academia. And nearly three years on, I am constantly reminded on a very daily basis that I am indeed a person of color. And that informs every single interaction I have both on campus and off it as well. And so my experience of racism in higher education in Ireland has been both personal but also observational. The personal being informed by my experiences of navigating the system and academia as a scholar with the very visible baggage of race. And the observational through my experiences of forming friendships and associations with other students of color. So I'm going to look at those personal and um, observational narratives to make some high-level suggestions of what the university needs to do in order to address this. As a PhD student, we are often told that you are not alone and everyone goes through this by other postgraduate students uh, because the PhD, as those of us doing it know, is not an easy thing to undertake. But what no one tells you is how being the only woman of color is going to be emotionally and psychologically crippling. Certainly no one told me how I was going to constantly be told that I am doing knee search. In other words, you're obviously working on Islam and minority rights because you are a Muslim woman. We, the black and brown bodies, are not considered epistemological authorities on our own lives. It is again cyclical. Racism in the personal for me has meant identifying and recognizing microaggressions that I encounter on a daily basis at university in Ireland. Why is it that Sahar Ahmed doesn't get replies to emails inquiring about professional academic opportunities, but when I make an unexpected phone call and my voice is heard, uh, the first thing I get is, you know, I didn't really realize your English is so remarkable. <laughs> so the very first thing that needs to be done is to acknowledge racism. If you do not acknowledge it, you cannot have a conversation about it. Ireland has a very real problem with accepting that it is a racist society. Trinity or any other university is a part of that society. You must accept that you are an institution that privileges whiteness, that racism exists within your walls, so you can learn how to undo this. Our idea of what racist also needs to expand, which cannot happen unless racism is out in the open. When black and brown students say that they experience racism, the first question they're asked is, oh my god, did someone attack you? Did you receive verbal and physical abuse? But institutionalized racism manifests itself in much more subtle and covert ways and is often dismissed and ignored by people in positions of authority. It cannot be proven in most cases. It is something that marginalized people experience through a constant othering. It just has to be taken at face value. I quote Professor Kelvin Bhopal, who is a professor of education and social justice at the University of Birmingham, who just last week actually said, we should start from the assumption that cases that are raised are racist rather than not racist. 
The dismissal of such covert racism undermines the position of the victim and questions whether such behavior is genuine. This perpetuates white privilege. A radical shift is needed from universities to acknowledge their long-standing role in privileging whiteness and to implement change. This can only be done by becoming comfortable with the language of race. I have used the words black, brown, and white countless times today because this is what we are. I am very visibly brown. You are very visibly white. I teach constitutional law in the law school and as a teaching assistant, so invariably we discuss constitutional responses to discrimination and equality law. This is one of my favorite anecdotes because during one of my classes, a white student spent a whole two minutes skirting around saying the word black to talk about Irish black folk, eventually landing on African-American. <laughs> African-American to talk about black Irish people. Why? Because whiteness has always been centered and the language and comfort required to speak about race and racialized minorities does not exist. This brings us to the second thing that needs to be done. Representation and visibility in positions of power and support. How many black and brown staff members work at Trinity? For the longest time, I was the only woman of color in my department and therefore the only teaching assistant of color. My students will probably graduate from college never having been taught by another woman of color. This is closely linked to finding sources of support. Bhubal has found through her extensive research that black and brown staff and students tend to not ask for help or to report racism because those whom they could report to were almost always white. I am a walking, talking example of this. The college has an excellent support network of counselors and I access their mental health services regularly. I did not want to though because there were no people of color working there. And I hear this all the time. Mental health professionals recognize this. My counselor acknowledged it. Why can't the university do the same? And this leads me to the last point, student bodies. Universities must address the racial makeup of their student bodies. Oxford University was recently accused of social apartheid for not admitting a single black British student in nearly, uh, one, of, uh, in nearly one in three of its colleges. Too often, institutions that, that fail to recruit black and brown students talk about their commitment to diversity by highlighting the numbers of international students they have recruited. This is a very real problem in Ireland. These are hollow and superficial measures that demonstrate a lack of clarity. An increase of Indian and Chinese international postgraduate students who pay exorbitant fees does not mean the lack of representation has been solved. I pay those fees so I know how high they are. <laughs> When the playing field is level, when white home students and black home students are paying the same, suddenly the diversity disappears. I know the great work programs like the Trinity Access program are doing because I've recently been working on a program for them. But that means I've seen firsthand the numbers of kids in TAP partner schools who are not white and the numbers at university are not reflective of that. We do not live in a post-racial society. What you look like matters race matters, and if we continue as we are, then whiteness and white privilege will continue to dominate in higher education institutions, with white groups doing whatever they can to protect and perpetuate their own positions of power. If the university responds to brown students speaking about institutionalized racism in higher education by panicking about she will say, and having the PR office constantly ask her to tell them exactly what she will be speaking about, if, if, the, if any university's first point of action is to be immediately on the defensive and start talking about how it is in fact extremely progressive, extremely liberal and is doing really well 
by pointing to brochures of girls in hijabs, um, which is institutions speak for, I can't be racist, I have a black friend, um, <laughs> then it is not getting the memo. I keep being told about how much Ireland has changed. Why hasn't the university changed with it? And so I will end with an anecdote. When I first started teaching at the law school, I, like all non-Irish people, struggle with pronouncing Irish names. And so before taking my first class, I asked my friends to phonetically break down the names for me um, um, so it would make it easier for me to pronounce them, which I wrote on the side of the attendance list. I went into class and butchered most of the names, much to no one's surprise, obviously. Um, but there was one name which I didn't even pay attention to before class. When I reached the name on my list, I absentmindedly, absentmindedly just read it out, not even registering that it was an identifiably Muslim name. When it hit me, I looked up to see who it was, and looking back at me was a brown face who mouthed, thank you, and looked at me with relief. Uh, it dawned on me then that I was probably the first person to have ever taught her who didn't struggle with her name, but ruined all the Irish kids' names instead. It was a profound moment for me, both as a student and as an educator. There need to be more faces like my students in the classroom at the university in Ireland, and there need to be more faces like mine teaching in the classroom at the university in Ireland. And as much as I hate ending by echoing words of a white man, <laughs> Professor David Gilborn of University of Birmingham recently said something which I cannot stress enough. If we're going to change things, it's going to be uncomfortable. So if this talk has made you uncomfortable because I have essentially called everyone white in this room inherently racist, very good. We're finally starting somewhere. Well Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and thank you very much, Shane, for this invitation. I want to begin with an apology. Um, you know, the world gave South Africa the responsibility to finish the critique of apartheid. 25 years later, perhaps a little more, we've got the entire critique of apartheid wrong. And so for the past few months, I've been trying to think about how one might rethink the critique of apartheid. And so my brief remarks for this evening's installment of Behind the Headlines are inspired by, the Irish, by an Irish Times article that identified how the catastrophic climate episode in Mozambique in the past week exposed the double standards in reporting our planetary predicament. In keeping with the spirit of that article, I wondered whether it is more appropriate to ask how we might exit the scripts of race and not merely ask whether race matters. To recapitulate the concerns of the Irish Times as a question, we might ask if there is a link between our planetary crisis and the proliferation of the idea of race in recent years. If you believe, as I do, that race underwrites our planetary crisis, I believe that rethinking its attachments to technology may offer us a different perspective and a different course of action on issues such as climate change and the Anthropocene. It will require us to rethink the narrative by which we have come to understand what Hannah Arendt identified as the co-evolution of, of the human and technology in an article in 1958. That process of questioning is already underway with calls to supplement studies of race and technology with explorations of race as technology. Given my sympathies with this scholarly direction, my concern rests with the extent to which the uncanny returns of race hinge upon a rapid expansion in technological objects of communication and control. Specifically, my query lies in why and how the symptom of race careered through the 19th and 20th century to return in intensified forms in fascism and apartheid. 
Beyond the question of identity politics, the post-colonial encounter with race largely recounts a story in which colonial narratives of blood and skin in the 19th century morphs into class and culture in the 20th, only to reappear in forms of violence in which blood, skin, class and culture coagulate. This is true of apartheid South Africa as it is true of colonial Ireland. Think only of Matthew Arnold's critical study of Celtic literature and his culture and anarchy, in which the British are distinguished from the Irish by the fact that the British have culture and the Irish have race. Mm. The problem with the prevailing narrative of race is that it does not proceed from the question of how we exit the scripts of race. We need a new narrative of race, one that surpasses the tendency to view race as merely a symptom or taxonomy. Perhaps race is more of an active agent in our modernity, a supplement, a signifier that attaches to objects to direct their instrumentality. Viewed as a supplement to modernity and not simply a product of history, race reveals itself part, as part of the story of the co-evolution of the human and technology. The history of colonialism, therefore, only partially explains the problem of race, and then too, only as a technology of power. I wish to propose something different. The sources for the uncanny returns of race appear to rest with the convergence in 1834 of the abolition of slavery in the Caribbean and the Cape and the scientific revolution at Cambridge University that overturned Newtonian optics in the 1800s. The abolition of British slavery resulted in the transfer of capacity entailed in slave labor to machines. I'm being very cryptic here. Unmooring the racial signification associated with the slave to detach as a free-floating signifier. Those of you who remember Stuart Hall will recognize what, we, what we're talking about when we're talking about free-floating signifiers. In the process of this detachment, the signification of race shifts from master to university. Immanuel Kant's text, The Conflict of the Faculties, and John Herschel's A Preliminary Discourse on the Study of Natural Philosophy in 1831 anticipates the shift in race from master to university. At the expense of repetition, I will emphasize that the dispersal of race that ensued with the abolition of slavery coincided with the revolution in science, initiated by three undergraduate students at Cambridge in the 1800s and consolidated in John Herschel's influential study on interstellar evolution while he was at the Cape in, in, South, in what is today South Africa. Briefly, John Herschel, son of William Herschel, settled at the Cape in 1834 to map the southern skies, where amongst other notable achievements, he coined the title to Darwin's Origins of Spe uh, Species. Darwin's, Darwin visits him in the Cape in 1836. He invented the word photography and emerged as the founding figure in resolving a problem of communication in the sciences through redefining a natural philosophy. Herschel's studies in mathematics, optics, and astronomy resulted in the expansion of scientific method that placed race under the jurisdiction of scientific reason and university discourse. Knowledge would be trusted to dominate the and control the signifier. Central to this redefinition of natural philosophy was a development of an inductive method that mediated between communication and control. The development of a method that addressed the problem of communication in the sciences proved reliable for shaping the debate on how race functioned as a qualification for liberal political subjectivity. The method introduced by Herschel's redefinition of natural philosophy indirectly enabled the idea that race would disappear with scientific progress and natural evolution. 
For no fault of Herschel, the promise of science to rein in and control the signification of race, to contain it in a taxonomic order, is probably one of the most spectacular failures of the institution of the modern university. Not long after his arrival at the Cape, a series of articles appeared in the New York Sun in 1835, citing Herschel as having discovered life on the moon. African-American scholars have called attention to the fact that the great moon hoax, as it became known, reflected the panic caused by the abolition of slavery in the Caribbean and the Cape. While I agree with this analysis, I would add that it also served to appease American sensibilities with the promise of an ecological utopia in which the end of slavery, with, in which the end of slavery uh, would, would occur without disturbing the orders of racial hierarchy. So in, in 1919, Sidire Molema, a black South African medical student in Scotland, recognized the, the spectacular failure of science to control the proliferation of racial signification, almost 100 years after the abolition of slavery. In a long forgotten book that weaves its way through the Western elaboration of the promise of scientific rationality in dealing with race, he cites the South African poet Roy Campbell with a hint of exasperation. O star-eyed star science, hast thou wandered there to waft us home the message of despair? The uncanny returns of race have to do with the failure of science to control its distribution and ready attachments to changes in technologies of power and technologies of memory in the making of an infinite universe. Race appears there where technology displaces signification, where meaning is surrendered to technological mechanisms of control. To exit the scripts of race then, my final two points, the university which monstrously failed in containing the proliferation of a free-floating signifier may seek to place an aesthetic education at the heart of its efforts to realign the elements that belong to the co-evolution of human and technology. Room for the humanities may be precisely what is needed to lead the way towards exiting the impasse of race, to subject it to critique by establishing a thought in motion through a training of the imagination and the senses. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you uh, to our four speakers for four absolutely cracking uh, uh, talks.